0: Good morning. Take a seat. My name is Janice. I am so glad to be with you this morning. I am one of the pastors here at the Vineyard. And um, and just to make you aware, our senior pastor is at home. He is sequestered, preparing for his second and final um, hip replacement surgery tomorrow morning at 5.30. So if you would be praying for him about that, we are very thankful to Modern Medicine for the miracle of that and for what we uh, assume was going to be Um, a better quality of life, for sure. And um, I think it is perhaps not a surprise that the sermon series that he's leading us into that we launched today is called The Pain Perspective. You know, it might have a little something to do with uh, what he's been dealing with and what we're excited to see uh, and into coming up. So pains, we've all got them. Uh, Some of them are debilitating. Some of them are minor. What makes pain a sermon um, subject? What makes that a message that we need to discuss in church? Um, I know why I think it's important. I think it's important because we make decisions based on pain. We make life decisions based on pain. Dare I say, we make spiritual decisions based on pain. So understanding what pain is doing in our lives and and how to stand up under it, and especially how to stand up under unexplained pain, I think is important. So if you need a title for today's message, let's let's call this one Unexplained Pain. Unexplained Pain. We're going to talk about a few things today. Um, I think we're going to talk about GameStop. We're going to talk about uh, worship. And we're going to talk about trauma. And we'll get to those Uh, I hope as we enter the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles or devices, let's open up to the first chapter of the book of Job. Those of you joining us online, hopefully you'll be able to follow along and uh, perhaps, perhaps you have access to your Bibles there as well. If you've ever tried to read through your Bible from beginning to end, you maybe get stuck in the book of Job because all of the action takes place in the first two chapters and in the final chapter, 42, the middle is a whole lot of dialogue, it's a whole lot of conversation, and uh, it's ancient literature, and sometimes you can get bogged down in it. But um, uh, I love that Jesus taught with parables, he taught with stories, and uh, so we're going to use the story of Job this morning to get at some things that I think God wants us to hear. All right, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, who he feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. Suffice it to say, in Job's day, he was wealthy. He didn't have have too many concerns. He had a whole lot of things going on well in his life. His sons used to hold feasts in their home on their birthdays. Who knew they celebrated birthdays all the way back then, right? Um, On their birthdays. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. And early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Folks, this is pre-priesthood. This is before the priesthood has been introduced, but it is clear that offering sacrifice was a way to atone for sin. And in a a period of time before the priesthood is introduced, the head of the family would act in a priestly manner. So he is making sacrifice for his family in case they did something they shouldn't have done and asking God's forgiveness. That was his regular custom. What a good custom to pray for your family. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let me fill in the the next little bit. So in the course of a single day, a catastrophic day... Satan demolishes everything that this man has, right? One servant comes in after another. And while one servant is reporting the bad news, the next servant comes in. And while that one's still talking, the next servant comes in. And they're reporting things like, oh, dude, the, you know, the marauders came in and took away all your herds over here. Oh, there was a storm. Something happened to all your herds over here. All of your things were taken over here. And by the way, the last servant came in and said, and it just so happens that all your kids were having a party at one of their houses. And a big storm came in and the house blew in and everybody's dead. In a single day, he loses all of these things. All of this stuff, he loses these things. And this is his response, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, and you've probably heard this before. Here's where it comes from. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, the party's not over. Chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan said, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, There's a lot here, right? First of all, let's don't get lost in the weeds. There are a lot of weeds in here that we could discuss and, you know, go back and forth about. Here's the reality. This is ancient scripture. This is is perhaps the oldest document in your Bible. It's easy to think when you get a Bible and there's 66 books listed in there that everything is chronological from Genesis to Revelation. It feels that way because it starts at the beginning and ends at the end of what we know to be time. But everything in the middle is not always organized in chronological order. As a matter of fact, scholars believe that this particular piece of Scripture is so ancient, based on the way the language is formed and the things that it refers to and the things that it does not refer to, that it perhaps fits way back in the Genesis timeline, maybe between, uh, you know, chapter 1 and chapter 12, sometime in the time of the patriarchs. They don't really know, but it seems very apparent that it is pre-Jesus. It is pre-law. It is pre-priesthood. It's way before then. So, why do we care about this and what, it, what does it have to do for us? You know, I know we live in a time when everybody wants to write off Old Testament scripture as allegory and some, you know, fairy tale. And it reads a little bit like a fairy tale. Things started this way and then they lived happily ever after and all the rest of it. But it is not a fairy tale. It is the words that God gave to someone, and there are things that we can learn from it. And there are things that we can learn about who God is. There are things that we can learn about how people behave. And there are things that we can learn about the adversary or the enemy in this. And that's what we're going to get after today. So, listen, it has been a crazy week or two in the stock market in America. I don't know much about stocks, but I am telling you that in this story, when Satan approaches God and God mentions Job's faith, Satan is suggesting a short sale on the stock of Job. I don't know anything about short selling, really, except that everything I've read about what happened with GameStop in the last week or two is that there are people who look at a stock, decide that it is not going to do well, and borrow against that belief and and double down on that, right? And what you're really doing is you are predicting failure for a particular business or a particular stock. Satan is predicting failure for Job. He's saying, this dude is not going to stand. This thing is going down. I will double down and bet on that. I will bet the farm on that. I believe that. So he is suggesting that Job's devotion to God is fake. That his devotion to God has shallow roots. That, you know, a little trouble, a little pain, and he's going to back away from God. He's going to curse and accuse and withdraw from God. That's what he's betting on, and he's suggesting that this hedge, hedge fund, this hedge of wealth and respect and and good fortune has artificially led to a fake faith, a shallow faith in this man, that that Job's faith is self-serving, that the only reason he's really loving God and serving God is because God has been blessing him. Who wouldn't love a God like that? And it made me think, what hedge has God put in our lives? That contributes to a shallow faith. What hedge has God put in our life? What blessing that represents a shallowness in our faith to the enemy? In other words, if Satan were to come to God about you, what would he suggest you would curse God over? What pain could he inflict in your life? What losses would cause you to give up on God? Because, see, he's saying this hedge between him and pain is propping up his faith, and without it, he's going to fold like a, like a pack of cards. He's just going to fold. See, oh, we all want blessings from God. We want them, but we dare not let them prop up our faith. That can't be why. That can't be why we are serving God the way we are. So Satan comes in with the hedge fund and says, Listen, I'm going to borrow against this guy, and I love what God says. God is like, bring it, bring it. I am convinced of Job. I am convinced of his faith and he will stand against what you're doing. I will back that up. Now, sidebar. I think there's a whole lot of little things here we can learn about the enemy that are important to put in your head and for you to keep in mind, all right? Because even Satan knows that prosperity can produce a fake faith. Even Satan's smart enough to know that, right? That prosperity can produce a shallow faith. But here's the great news. Satan cannot see the depth of commitment in our hearts. He cannot see that. Number one, Satan does not see what God sees. Let that comfort you when you are feeling afflicted, when you are feeling like everything is crashing in on you. He doesn't see how deep your roots are. He can't see that part. I love that. Number two, it's also important to recognize in the scripture, and this is where we see it most clearly, that Satan has limits. The enemy has limits. You may feel like that all the stops have been pulled out, and you've been attacked, and everything in your life is crashing, and things are not going well, and you don't know why all these things are happening, and you feel like God has just set the enemy free on you, and you don't recognize that there are limits, that there are places and things he is not allowed to do. Now, Perhaps he has a lot of rain. Do you know that we're living in occupied territory? That Ephesians 2-2 tells us that he is the prince of the power of the air, that we are living on this earth where Satan has rain. He has room over disease. He has room over the brokenness of what we live in, right? And so we are living in a land of choice. We have the choice to love God, the land to, a, a choice to reject God. We're living in that land. But even then, even now, Satan has limits. He can only do what God gives him room to do, and one day, God will set all things right. He will take care of it. Number three, and I love this, and I think you've got to keep this in your head, Satan's attack isn't about you at all. It wasn't about Job. It was about God. Do you notice that Satan is never interested in forging a relationship with Job? He's never interested in forging a relationship with Eve and Adam, anybody that he attacks in in the story, in in us. See, that's the big difference between the God that we love and follow and who the enemy is. We are mere chattel. We're just collateral damage to the enemy trying to get at our God. Do you know that in ancient times of all the gods that were worshipped in the times of the patriarchs and in antiquity, that the other gods all had this fear relationship with their people, right? Think about mythology. There was always this matter of trying to please the gods. Like, what can we do to make you happy? And we'll cut ourselves and we'll give you our children and we'll, we'll you know, sacrifice our children and, and let you... Because there's no relationship. It was just a fear situation. But with the God of the Israelites, it was the first God that wanted a relationship with his people. That's what he wanted. The enemy doesn't want a relationship with you. He couldn't care less about you. That's why it's easy to destroy you. Or it's easy to entice you away. All he cares about is that you reject God. That's his only goal. And God is there saying, I care about you. And that's how I know he's going to stand the test of time. Because I have a relationship with Job. That is devotion. You see it as, oh, I'm just giving him nice things. And that's what he's responding to. But I happen to know Job's heart. And he banked on that. Number four, our faithfulness under pressure is a curiosity to Satan. It is a curiosity to Satan. He doesn't really know what to do with that because he doesn't expect that. He really believes that we operate under a prosperity gospel. So if we can take all of those good things away from you, then it will mess you up and it will destroy you. And you know what? 2020 is not going to be that for us. We are not going to let the losses of 2020 take away our relationship with God. I don't care what we've lost, we're not gonna let that happen because our roots are deeper than that. Our roots are deeper than the losses of 2020. Five, Satan's attack reveals Job's faith. Or should I say it this way, pain reveals Job's faith. Pain brings out truth. That's why people use it when they torture, right? When they're trying to get information from someone, we get pain because we want truth. We think you won't lie when there is enough pain inflicted. That's the idea, right? What will be revealed? What does pain reveal in you? When you're pressed against the wall, when things are happening, when you're in a pressure situation, what escapes your heart? What escapes your mouth? What is it that is really there that has to rise to the surface? What is the truth of what's really, it's really hard to fake it when you're in pain, isn't it? When you're in pain, you tend to want to tell the truth. The enemy wants to test and know why we serve God. Do you serve him for the blessings that he has given you or do you serve him for love? Do you serve him for the, the good things that come by being a part of a church in a town and you have great membership and fellowship? And is that why you're here? Is that what it is? Or, or is there a devotion to God where the roots go deep? So the test for Job was nothing less than pain. First, he takes all of his holdings, right? Which is an emotional pain, right? Initially, he's not allowed to touch his body. So initially, every, all the losses that Job sustains are emotional to him. The loss of his children, the loss of his holdings. Financial stress is an emotional strain, right? People kill themselves over, over financial stress. Isn't that crazy? People kill themselves over the stock market. There are worse things than, than losing everything you have, friends. There really are, you know, but, at that, but that sense of failure or whatever, there are people who do that. They, they lose it all. So next he attacks his body, physical pain, and, and that gets even a little closer, right? A little closer to pulling out the truth because even the enemy knows that pain affects our spiritual decisions. Pain gives us a perspective of God. It becomes a lens, a lens where the truth will appear. So Satan is counting on the average response to unexplained pain. And this is what I love about this story and what you need to know is that while we see the big picture from a a distance and we can look down on the whole story of Job and we get the, the writings here, there's nothing in this book that suggests that Job ever understood why things happened to him. For Job, this was unexplained calamity. He never, he never gets that. He never understands or hears why this is happening. He doesn't need that. Because, and here's why that, matter, why that matters. Some pain makes sense. Some pain that we experience in this life absolutely makes sense. You know, you touch a hot stove, you pound your, your thumb with a hammer, that kind of pain, it's irritating and, it, and it's painful, but you get it, right? You're not going, why, oh, why does my thumb hurt? You know why your thumb hurt. You hit it with a hammer. You get that, right? That's an, uh, that's an explained pain. Same thing with losses, right? There are some losses that they're terrible, but we get it. When we lose our elderly loved ones, we lose our, our, our grandparents and our parents in old age. We're never ready. We don't like it. It's painful. We grieve, but we get it. We, never, we didn't really expect to outlive them, did we? You know what I mean? We knew that this was going to happen right? Because grief and sadness is a proportionate response to expected pain. As a matter of fact, when you, or explained pain, when you have a pain and you're not sad about it, you need to talk to somebody about that, right? I mean, you might be, that's a little weird. When painful things happen, you should say, ow, There, there are ways to do that, right? So that's a proportionate response to that. That kind of pain makes sense. We wrap our head around it, but unexplained pain, Pain where you never hear the whys just feels unjust, doesn't it? That is not fair. My other friends aren't experiencing this. The other people around me are not experiencing this. Why am I experiencing this kind of pain? So how do we react to God in the face of unexplained pain? What spiritual decisions do we make that are laced with pain? Now, I didn't number these, although I kind of fall into a habit of of saying numbers. I kind of bullet pointed them. But if you're taking notes, I've got several of these bullet points of how I think we respond to God in unexplained pain. And the first few surround this question. Are you a big God? Are you a big God? In other words, when we, are, when we are racked with unexplained pain or loss of any kind, what we really want to know is, God, can you fix it? Are you big enough to fix it? And, and here's how the questions begin. The first one is we beg. We beg, right? That's generally our first response. Stop it. Please stop it now. Please don't take them. Please let them stay with me. Don't, don't let this happen. Please fix it. You know, please give me a job. Please don't let this be true. Whatever. We begin to beg God for whatever it is that's, that's happening. Just make it stop. If you're a big God, please do that, right? Because you're big enough to do that. And then that feeds very quickly into bargaining, Right, but Where we're like, you know, now, I, okay, I will exchange, I will, I will find some of my bad behavior over here and I will cough that up in exchange for promises for good behavior. I wasn't, I wasn't going to give this up yet, but, but if you will give me this over here, I prom, I'll trade you, I'll trade. right? And we, we begin to trade our bad behaviors for good behaviors or promises for good behaviors in order to get God to do something. We begin to bargain with him because surely he's big enough to do it and if he's just pleased enough, he would. The next thing I think we do is we question. We question. This is the why, why, why? What am I missing here? What was I supposed to learn? Did I miss something? Why are you doing this, God? Can I tell you that this one will take you into a hole? If you live in the asking God why and needing an answer before you can process through your pain, you're going to get stuck there, and the enemy knows it right? Job does not need to know why this happened. He is experiencing the pain that's bad enough. He has a few friends who comes along and are no help at all. But the the bottom line is he never finds out why. And that isn't even the solution at the end. The solution at the end of this is never to find. Sometimes we will never find out why on this side of glory that certain things were taken from us, where certain pains were experienced, or why these, these pains happen at all. The fourth thing I think we do in this stage is we imagine. Sometimes when pain comes into our lives, we start making stuff up. We're like, oh, well this must be punishment for something. I must have done something, so I'm trying to figure out what that is. That must be it. Um, What do I have to do to get it gone? Is this punishment? We begin to make up reasons for why it happened, because if we can put some order to it, if we can put, well, God's going to use it for this and that and the other thing. If I can put some order to it, then maybe I can cope with it a little better. You know what? It still hurts. It still hurts. Just because you think you know some good came out of it is not going to make it feel better in the moment. Pain is pain. And it's okay to respond to it in that way. God is still big, even when you're trying to make, it, make up all of these reasons why. The next set of, question, or set of responses, I think, surround this question. If, you're a good, if you are a big God, are you a good God? If you're big enough to fix it, are you good enough to fix it? Because if you're big enough to fix it and you don't, it means you're not a good God. And you hear people say it all the time. Well, if I was a parent, I would do this or that. So if God is my parent, why isn't he fixing it? Why is he not caring for me in the way that I would care for my loved one? So he must not be a good God. And so we begin to accuse. How could you? How could you do that to me? I can't understand why you're doing that. And that sometimes leads us to being indignant about it. How dare you do this to me, God? I, I do have one story to help illustrate th- th- this particular one. Um, as a parent, we had uh, we raised five children. They're all, you know, uh, alive and well and, and uh, older now. But when, once upon a time, they were small. And at one point, when I had a small child, I had to take uh, a child to the doctor's office in a time when they probably should have gone to the ER. But back in that day, going to the ER was saved for like, you're dying of a heart attack. Everything else, we just went to a local doctor. And, uh, and I remember showing up and they said, wow, we got to fix that. Uh, and, you know, so it's not going to feel good. So we need you to um, lay across this child and hold them down. I'm talking like three or four years old. don't have enough help. They didn't have anesthesia. They didn't have anything to numb anything with. We have to fix this. It's not going to feel good. Can you help hold your child down? And I naively said, sure. It was a poor decision. Not that I really wanted anybody else doing it. Now I I think I would have actually. But so I remember laying across this child, holding pinning down their hands face to face with them. And I was prepared for some screaming. You know what I mean? I, I was geared up for that. I was prepared for the screaming. This is what I was not prepared for and it still gets me. The look in their eyes. They were like, and and they're not saying words, right? It's like, I thought I could trust you. You're the one person I could trust. How dare you let this happen to me? And there you are as a loving parent, holding down a child and, and thinking to yourself, I wish I could explain that this is for healing. I wish I could explain that this is going to make things better. I wish I could explain to you why this is necessary, and I can't. I cannot. I, you, you couldn't comprehend it if I explained it. You, you can't, your little brain can't take that in. And I think, how many things would the Father love to explain to me, but my brain is too little? I can't take it in. I don't understand. So just sitting around going, why, why, why? It doesn't get us anywhere. It's a hole. And sometimes we fall into that accusing look, and I wonder how many times have I accused the father of being unloving and not being good to me and saying, God, well, how dare you do this to me? And really, I just don't see the big picture. There is a much bigger picture at play that I can't even understand. The next thing I think that happens is sometimes we then withdraw. withdraw. It's like, you know, you burned me there. I'm out of here. I will never trust you again, God. Look what you did to me. I am not going to be there. You fall into despair. You assume that God doesn't care. You assume that God is mean-spirited and, frankly, that I am meaningless to him. When tragedy happens in people's lives, I always wonder, it's going to go one of two ways. It's either going to drive a family to God or it's going to pull them back and it's going to get between them and God and create a wedge of of distrust because they no longer think God is is trustworthy. And then the next one is we blame God. We begin, we refuse to serve a God that would permit this loss in my life. I was once reaching out to a woman and trying to uh, invite her to consider Jesus, and I will never forget her saying to me, I had a stillborn child that I delivered at nine months, and I will never serve a God that took my baby from me that was it. She was going to blame God for that. She was not going to have anything to do with a God that would allow that in her lack of understanding of what that is. Sometimes the loss is so big that we pull back altogether and we just blame him. And then finally, and we may get into this in in the future messages in this series, but the idea of numbing it, sometimes then we just numb. We look for ways to lessen the pain. We medicate. We self-medicate. We try to manage it or, or dismiss our pain in some ways that sometimes are unhealthy. See, Satan is betting on Job reacting to God out of his pain. He's betting on that. And he is expecting Job to make a poor spiritual choice, just like he's expecting you to make a poor spiritual choice when pain comes into your life. But Job's stock soars. And I love that, right? Satan ends up with the margin calls. Because watch what happens when Job doesn't give up and when he doesn't give in and when he stands tall in his pain. Job's pain drives him to worship. Job's pain drives him to worship. He says he got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, which means he recognizes he is mourning the loss of what he has, but then he fell to the ground in worship. Wow. He says, I don't get it. I don't understand, but I know who does. He yields. There's our word again. He yields to what God is doing in his life. He says, but God is in charge. Does your pain drive you to worship? That's a hard one. Maybe that's the last place you want to go. And maybe you're thinking, you know what? When I'm in pain, the last thing I'm thinking about is worship. And pain usually doesn't hit me on Sunday morning right before the message. You know, that's not when I'm feeling pain. Folks, there's so many ways for you to get worship during this time, right? There's so many ways for you to be prepared. You know, we got Spotify. We got YouTube. You got playlists everywhere. You need to get one of those ready. Do you know how many people I know who are in the midst of grief have relied on a set of music, a loop <laughs> of music, of worship that just comforts their heart and brings them into the presence of God when they don't feel like they can and it doesn't feel normal to them? Maybe you're going, I can't muster this in my time of pain. I don't have the words. I am not artistic. I don't, I don't think those ways. And I think that's why it's so great that we have the written word. You know, um, my husband and I got caught binging a, a series um, on Netflix that had to do with Washington spies during the Revolutionary War. And it's a historical piece. But one of the things I got, kind of got lost on was uh, this little contraption. I don't know if this is true or not. And I'm supposedly a historian. Anyway, they said there was this this little contraption that allowed Thomas Jefferson to make copies of his letters. So, while he was writing here, there was a little wood thing that went over and held another pen, and so as he's writing, it's writing with him, right? And so he's making copies of his his letters, you know, Xerox wasn't around back then. And so that's what he was doing. and I thought, ah, oh. You know, when we're teaching children to learn their letters, when we're teaching them how to, to write cursive, if they do that anymore, when we're teaching them how to do whatever it is they do with a pen, we, we teach them to trace, right? We have dotted stuff, and they like, they like trace the letters until it becomes a natural movement for them on their own, until they can do it without the lines underneath. And I thought, you know, when we can't worship on our own, let's trace somebody else's worship. Let's trace somebody else's words. Open up the book of Psalms and find one that kind of speaks your heart because David went through a lot of stuff. And find one that speaks your heart. Copy that down. Read it out loud. Pray that out loud. Trace somebody else's worship until you can learn to get it out on your own. Job's pain drove him to worship. But look what we can also learn in this passage about what our pain does to others. What it does to others Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, we may have a really high personal pain tolerance. You may be I was like, I don't, I don't I can deal with this. I don't I'm okay. You know, I'm not going to curse God when things are taken from me. But wow. What happens when you see your loved ones suffering? Whose pain makes you angry at God? Whose pain makes you angry at God. You know, Satan should have bet on Job's wife. She was the short sale right here. Don't let the enemy get at you through the pain of your loved one and those you care about. Don't let that happen. Now, now that Job's pain has happened, enter friends. And I'm going to skip through this quickly, right? Now enter friends, all right? If you uh, read the book of Job, you will find that from chapter three all the way to 35 chapters... 35 chapters, he has friends who come in and tell him everything he probably did wrong and why God is punishing him. They're such great friends. So much sarcasm in this. I just love it. It's like a script. And finally, Job is like, you guys are miserable, miserable comforters. You are terrible, right? But here's what they do first, chapter 11, or verse 11. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now we're back to community, aren't we? What does community do for you? How does community help you process your pain? How do they influence your view of God and help you interpret your pain accurately? This is what his friends did really well. They showed up, they sympathized, and they comforted, and they shut up. Sometimes that's all we need to do, friends. That's it. For seven days, they just sat there. They didn't have any answers. They didn't have any questions. They didn't have anything. They just showed up. They sympathized, and they kept their mouths shut. That's how you can be with someone in a time of crisis. This is kind of what Jesus in the garden has with his disciples that go with him. Only the disciples went one step further. They fell asleep, which is a problem. But, but usually it's nice to have people there with you, right? But then they stayed too long. And Job's pain drove his friends to try to fix it. 35 chapters of his friends trying to fix it, right? They spend 35 chapters telling him about the unconfessed sin he had to have been hiding. They are arrogant. They uh, are assumed that unrepented sin is the only reason anything could have happened because bad stuff happens to bad people. They are terrible theologians, right? And they operate from this formal, fearful relationship to God. But here's the thing: when somebody is in pain, you don't know. You don't know. And you can't fix it. You cannot fix it. Here's what you can do: you can use your own pain to comfort others. Now, don't get me wrong, you're not you're not besting their story, you're not one-upping them, but listen to what it says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2. Second Corinthians one, three through five, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the Father and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. The community is valuable for creating healing with one another. God uses us as a community. Yes, God comforts you individually, but he also uses the community to do it. And we need to permit that to happen. We've got to allow that to happen. Here's the deal. The pain and losses of this last year or this season of your life, they are not a waste. They're not a waste. Maybe you limped in here this morning and I'm telling you, let God use this pain in your life to reveal who you are and who he wants you to be and to comfort others in this midst. You know, I had turned this message in, and I thought I was done, and sometimes God doesn't really bring the point of the message to me until the day before I give it, and that was the case here, so I've got a little bit here that isn't gonna show up on the screen, but uh, a Christian leader that I respect and, and uh, follow said this and it struck me because it speaks to trauma these past 12 months have been traumatizing globally nationally individually the trauma will not end with the pandemic we people of god must prepare for long-term mutual and community care the aftershocks of so much death isolation sickness financial disaster anxiety insecurity and pure raw fear will linger so much longer than we want it to. We will wish that we and others could get it together sooner. People will need a lot of help and from a lot of sources, but there are things that we Jesus people can do. We can show people the love and compassion of God. We can walk beside one another and others on the slow road to recovery. There is much fellowship to be found there. We can ask the Lord to grant us patience, mercy. If the church has ever needed to seek the Lord for how to minister, it is now. And as I was thinking about that trauma, it occurred to me that those 35 chapters represent friend trauma. There are some times when you have friends who have ministered to you wisely. There are other times when you have had friends during this season who turned out to not be friends at all, who have turned out to be people who have made your pain worse and you don't know what to do with that listen to what happens at the very end. I always thought the story was sewed up with the idea that Job got all of his wealth back and that was the end of the story. Here's how it really ends, 42, seven. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliaphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls, seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. So they did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And here's the point. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored The Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. After he had prayed for his friends, are there people in our lives who have not been friends to us, who have actually made our pain worse in ways we never expected? And God is asking us to pray for them, to pray God's forgiveness over them. And maybe that's the beginning of our own restoration over our own pain we will start with letting some other people off the hook. Folks, if there's ever been a day to let people off the hook, it is in this time. When you think, oh, that just showed us who they really are. No, it doesn't. That showed you how people reacted in pain. That showed you how people reacted in panic. That showed you how people reacted when nobody knew the next day what was going to happen. That's all that showed you. That doesn't show you who people really are. Just, it's time to let people off the hook. To pray for each other and so we're going to do that this morning we're going to do that this morning now we've got people standing out there and they're going to be available for you to go and seek prayer in a moment but right now just in here and those of you online if there, if there is a wound or a pain in your life right now and you would like some healing for that we're not going to talk to you about it nobody's going to approach you would you just stand where you are If you're online, you can just stand right where you're watching, in your living room, wherever you are. If you're already standing, I don't know, take a different posture. If there is something in your life and you're like, I know that I need to either receive healing for this or I need need God's courage to give forgiveness to someone else for this pain that has been in my heart and I need to let this go, that's me this morning. Would you stand wherever you are? And we're just going to have a collective prayer over you before we go into this final song. See you. Anybody else? You know there are wounds there. Listen, there is a difference between scars and infection right? Everybody is going to be scarred by this last 12 months. I guarantee it. We're all going to have scars. Scars are a memory of what we've been through. But you know what wounds are? Open wounds are still infected and they're still seeping. You ever seen a bandage over a wound that is not healing correctly? It just, it just leaks out on everything, doesn't it? We don't want to go any further with wounds. We want those to be cleaned up and healed up. It's okay to take our scars with us. They remind us of where we've been. Anybody else who would like to stand for prayer this morning? All right, this is what we're going to do. The rest of you stay seated so that we know who we're praying for. As you're seated, look around. Whoever God is directing you to, just lift your hand toward them, and we're just going to pray while the worship team plays behind us. And I just want you to pray over those people that you see. Whoever God is directing you to pray over, and let's just spend a few moments praying. And if that's still you and you want to stand up and get in on this prayer, don't miss out. Jump to your feet. Somebody will just lift their hand and be praying toward you. And we'll also be praying for those of you at home. Let's pray. Every person who's watching online right now, Father, I pray that your spirit would be releasing forgiveness and healing like the balm of healing. That you would be a salve to the wounds and losses of this year. For those who feel like whatever this pain is cannot be cared for, cannot be healed. God, I pray for restoration. Not for restoration back to whatever everything was before because that's not what Job got either. Restoration means that you're taking us forward to a new day. A new day with scars, with memories, but without festering.